You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vohr, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. Today, we talk with Dr. Sydney Hankerson about building partnerships between faith communities and mental health care providers, how he's seen those work together, and how we can help people overcome barriers and get care. But first, Holly, how are you this week? I am doing pretty okay. Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm doing well. I uh, I've been enjoying this season so far. I know we're kind of you know mm-hmm. not super far into it, but enjoying it so far and uh, kind of back in the groove of it now. Feels like after after a couple weeks of getting it out. So uh, yeah, uh, excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, me too. I know we just got to record another episode just a moment ago, and these conversations. I think they're just going to be so good. This like the second half of season five. I'm really really excited. Um, including our conversation yeah. that you know that we'll talk about today, but but yeah, I'm doing I'm doing good. I'm glad you're doing good, and yay yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, has there has there been anything fun or exciting in the Vore household this last week? Aside from kind of current events, obviously, I know we've talked uh, kind of every intro so far about that. Uh, So if we set that aside for a bit, nothing super out of the ordinary, uh, kind of just going along. I know I mentioned last time uh, kind of getting back into some structure type things. And so uh, nothing, uh, nothing kind of above and beyond that. But what about y'all? Yeah, no, that's I mean, sometimes that's that's nice. A little bit of not too much busyness. It's the same. I'd say the same in our home. Nothing super new. No, no more snow this week. <laughs> I mean, I know last week <laughs> I talked about the snow that you know came down on Waco, um, but now yeah. it's been it's been nice. It's I feel like we're finding. Well, we're now one week into the semester at Baylor, and you know the kids are a couple of weeks into the semester with school, and so just you know we're doing pretty okay. Yeah, Still taking things one day at a time. So yeah. Yep. Well, what, what about, I mean, so you just mentioned like current events, I guess the last week we did get to watch an inauguration um, within our country. And so I'm curious, did y'all get to watch it? And if so, like, were there any favorite moments or anything that stood out for y'all? Yeah, I so we did. We watched a good bit of it. Um, I'll say the thing that stood out to me the most was the the poet right Amanda yeah. Gorman who had just a mm-hmm. beautiful beautiful poem that I think it was probably the thing that at least from my my Twitter sphere was talked about the most yeah. um, and I love you know as somebody who you know, I have a, an undergrad in music and kind of have like a background in that type of thing I love getting to see um, you know, often we kind of shift, I know in the past, you know, whatever chunk of years, there's kind of a shift of, you know, art degrees being useless, you know, kind of that type of like sentiment from some chunks of of people. And I think the fact that that seemed to be what like resonated with people the most and like really mm-hmm. stuck out, right, I think shows something in terms of how uh, art of all different kinds and like kind of those types of things resonate mm-hmm. and, and can express things sometimes that 
maybe aren't able to be expressed otherwise. And so um, I thought that, yeah. I mean, that was my favorite part for sure. But what about y'all? Did y'all get to, to watch any of it? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, this is one of those moments where I'm so grateful that, that the kids are home. So, you know, Callie and Oliver are, you know, they're home for school, you know, through the pandemic, they've been doing it online. And so it was really nice having the flexibility that day to be able to just sit together in the living room and watch it and watch history unfold yeah. in front of us with Kamala Harris becoming our, our vice president, becoming, you know, the first woman, first African-American woman. And it's just amazing. I, I'm I'm just so, so honored and, and excited and grateful that I was able to watch that moment with my children sitting beside me. Um, yeah. But to your point about Amanda Gorman's poem, I mean, it was the same for me. I think that was probably the moment that stood out. I mean, I think there's there's a lot of them, but but hearing her her poem and in particular those last few lines where she had recited saying, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it, um, that mm. really just like, woof, man, it was good. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. And then just being able to talk with the kids about it throughout the day too, I think was pretty yeah. powerful. Callie's, you know, she's eight and a half. And so, you know, Oliver's five. And so, you know, Oliver's still kind of, you know, you get some bits of it, but not so much, but you know, right. with Callie, it was, it was meaningful to be able to talk through and, you know, uh, yeah, it was good. So, yeah. I love that. Well, speaking of kind of like events, right, uh, this is a, a kind of a more rough segue, but I know that our guest today, you had actually connected with him at an event back when yes. we could go to <laughs> events and things, you know, back when it was a, a, a reality for all of us. Uh, so do you want to tell us a little bit about, I know, uh, a little bit about <laughs> Sydney and his work and maybe even like what made you uh, want to have him on because I know we this is one that's uh, we've been talking about for a while but what that. made you like really want to have him come on yeah no I love that that's so good so so Dr. Hankerson and I connected um back in July of 2019 and um, we were both invited up to DC by SAMHSA the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and the Center for Faith and Opportunity Initiatives which is um, part of the Health and Human Services so they had brought us up along with a handful of other folks, including many that have been on the show, like Dr. Ken Pargament and Dr. David Rosmarin and, and many others. Um, but Sydney and I actually got to sit beside each other and we presented back to back with one another ab about the intersection of faith and mental health. And in particular, Dr. Hankerson just spoke so well about these partnerships between faith communities and mental health care providers that I really thought, oh my gosh, we need to bring him on the show. And in particular, he really focused on, you know, black churches and the work that he's been doing within New York City. And I just was so impressed by the work that he's been doing that um, I really wanted to ensure that our listeners would get to hear about what he's been up to. So, but yeah, just as a human being, he's just an incredible person. His work is meaningful. The The work that he talks about with the Community Coalition in New York City um, and the ways that he's been really trying to bridge more of the work between faith-based organizations and mental health care providers, breaking down stigma, all of it. I just thought it's 
the way that he has approached this is so practical and meaningful and impactful. Yeah. Well, we will get out of the way and let you hear directly from him. So here is our interview with Dr. Sydney Hankerson. Enjoy, y'all. So today we have Dr. Sidney Hankerson on. He is an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons and the New York State Psychiatric Institute. He conducts research to train clergy how to counsel community members with depression. He attended the University of Virginia for his undergraduate and received his medical degree and master's of business administration from Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And when out of the office, he is an avid NBA and college football fan and loves trying new restaurants in the city. Sydney, I am so, so excited to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Holly, it's it's truly a pleasure to be here. I'm really delighted. It was so wonderful to meet you at the SAMHSA conference and just, uh, yeah, delighted to be here. Yeah, I love that. I I agree. It was um, Dr. Hankerson and I got to sit by one another for this uh, meeting over at the um, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration and um, in summer of 2019, where and that's where I got to learn about his good work and was just so excited about the opportunity for him to come on and get to, to share a bit with our listeners. So thank you again so much for being here. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, I've heard a bunch of good of good stuff about you from Holly. So it's you know it's good to finally connect with you because she was so excited about having you on. So I'm glad to to have you here. Yeah, no, and thank you all for this platform. This is just such an important way to get the word out mm. for, for for all the work that you're doing through this podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Is there anything else that I missed in your fancy bio there that you want to tell our listeners about? Uh, well, I would just. Add that, you know, I think my important job is as a, a husband and a, and a father, and I have two, two girls, two daughters, mm-hmm. and, um, so I'm, and our, we have a Labradoodle who's a girl, surrounded mm-hmm. by just very, very strong women. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, um, I I know I've gotten to hear a bit about some of what we're going to be talking about today from that meeting that we just mentioned before, but um, I'd love if we can start, you know, especially from your background as a psychiatrist, do you mind telling us a little bit about the prevalence of those who actually receive um, mental health care in the United States? Sure. Well, we know in terms of kind of folks who need treatment and those who actually get it. So there was actually a, um, a landmark study that came out in 2003 that was part of a nationally representative survey across the United States, all 48 states. And they asked people who had uh, common mental health problems like depression, anxiety, substance use, and also more serious mental health problems like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Where do you seek care? And, you know, roughly uh, less than half of the people with those problems actually sought treatment, which indicated that as a whole, people have a significant amount of unmet mental health needs in the United States. But what was really interesting about that, and I think especially relevant for our time together today, 
is that more people in the United States first sought help from mental health professionals, social workers, and Mm. psychologists. And then the second group that was sought after in terms of care were clergy. And so throughout the United States, regardless of a person's faith tradition or the racial or ethnic background, um, you know, clergy are really second behind social workers and psychologists in terms of providing mental health supports, counseling, and access to care. And after that, Mm. people sought care from general medical providers. And then last was psychiatrists. So it really, in terms of the the bulk of the mental health care in this country is is provided by social workers, followed by psychologists, and then clergy. That's so interesting. I mean, that's really helpful in thinking about who are the groups that when individuals are needing care that they're um, perhaps first or shortly thereafter, you know, what are those groups that that folks are turning to? Um, And the mix of disciplines, I think, is really important. I know that you, you know, when I got to hear you speak at SAMHSA, you spent, you know, quite a bit of time specifically talking about and explaining and thinking about communities of color and, you know, what what access to care looks like for many various groups um, of color. And so I'd love to hear if you could talk a little bit about, like, do any of these groups change when we think about different racial or ethnic groups? Um, and if so, how does that change? Yeah. So I, I, that's such an important question, Holly, and I'll, um, really focus my comments on African-Americans because that's, uh, the population with whom I see patients as predominantly, as well as with whom I conduct my research studies. Um, Mm. so I definitely, evidence shows that African-Americans and Mexican-Americans actually have the lowest rates of depression treatment in the United States. Hmm. Um, And so that's um, kind of what we know, uh, who's most in need or who's less likely to seek formal mental health services. And so I think in the African-American community in particular, there are several factors that contribute to that low rate of care. One is just kind of distrust in a history of systemic racism in medicine and in the society generally. Um, So there have been well-documented tragic cases of uh, healthcare professionals uh, doing harm. Uh, The most infamous and probably well-known case of that is the Tuskegee syphilis study um, that took place in Mm -hmm. Alabama. But that and other instances of a systemic racism have contributed to distrust with the medical profession in general. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing some of that distrust now and related to the uh, distrib- distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. So distrust is huge. And then lack of access to culturally uh, sensitive providers is another reason. And then um, low levels of, of health insurance. You know, in the U.S., most of our health insurance is tied to our employment. And so unemployment, unfortunately, is disproportionately high in the African-American community. And so lack of uh, health insurance also contributes to kind of low rates of service. Um, And then there's honestly, just in terms of kind of strengths and cultural preferences for incorporating spirituality into care, which I think as a mental health field, 
we in general have struggled with that. I know, Holly, you and Dr. Pargament are really at the cutting edge of trying to mm-hmm. aid some of that. But I think uh, there's certainly a preference on spiritual supports, prayer, and support from friends and informal supports as a source of mental health supports than turning to mental health professionals in the African-American community. Hmm. So let me ask a question because uh, my brain works in a particular way, but this might not be a fair kind of uh, jump to conclusion or maybe hypothesis, right? But so the first thing you talked about was when we see people when they're in need, like a first kind of chunk of people they go to is mental health care providers of various sorts. And second is clergy and faith leaders. If I were to like kind of overlay that with, okay, within African-American communities, they're less likely to uh, trust mental health care providers or healthcare providers in general based on a lot of like systemic problems. Would then we say like, okay, so maybe those communities would primarily go to faith leaders or is that maybe too far of a stretch? Well, I think the, the evidence shows that I think, you know, regardless of race or ethnicity, most people are more likely to seek help first from a social worker or psychologist. Uh, But I think that clergy in the African-American community are more likely to be contacted than in other communities, I would say. I would say that's a fair statement. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. So Dr. Hakenerson, you talked a little bit about some different, you know, barriers to care, which include like you know, some cultural distrust that you noted. And I know there are some other ones that you've talked about before, um, including like a, a lack of access. And you, you also just noted that a moment ago as well. Um, perhaps some issues around stigma and um, clinician bias or labeling. You touched on those a moment before, but is there anything else you'd like to add about that or unpack about those common barriers to care? Um, again, especially for communities of color or the African-American community? Yeah. So I, I thank you for that, Holly. Uh, so I, I'll I think address two in particular. So I think that there are structural barriers to to care that encompass um, what we would classically call as kind of the social determinants of health, whether that's kind of challenges with economic inequalities or employment inequalities. And I think especially as it relates to mental health, um, there is really an abundance of literature that highlights the adverse mental health consequences of racial discrimination. And so I think mm. it's important to explicitly name that as a you know barrier to care in the African-American community, because it's been scientifically proven that you know racial discrimination impacts mental health and increases the risk of depression. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the most concerning things now is that there's an alarming rise of suicide in Black boys between the ages of 5 and 12, um, as well Mm -hmm. as African-American adolescent girls. And so although this trend has happened over the last several years, some of the, the studies are actually linking some of the increased rates in suicide to racial discrimination. And the impact of racial discrimination, you know, on these on these kids and on these youth. So mm. I think that really acknowledging and and getting comfortable being uncomfortable, you know, talking about racism, I think is important, especially as we, 
even think about the role that race has had in our churches and in our houses of worship. It's mm-hmm. been on numerous occasions that the most segregated time in our country is on Sunday morning. And while you know we've come a long way, uh, certainly in houses of worship with much more kind of multicultural churches and and that I think that's wonderful. There's still a tremendous amount of kind of segregation on Sunday morning. And so I think, you know, talking about the African American experience and especially barriers to care and mental health has to explicitly address, you know, racial discrimination. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree with you and I'm so grateful for the ways that you are naming this and articulating it and unpacking it. I mean, again, I know that the presentation that I got to see a year ago, um, over a year ago, was before especially as much awareness around racism has um, has grown over you know, over this last year. And so the ways in which you're ex- unpacking this, um, I think are incredibly important. And and I'm really grateful for the ways that you are doing that um, in this conversation. So particularly, I mean, so so you had named and, and unpacked some of these barriers and, and including uh, racism and how that is woven into this. I know you have been, you've done a lot of good work in connecting with faith-based organizations and thinking as a psychiatrist, how, how do you partner with faith-based organizations and how do you work with them in order to, to increase perhaps some understanding about mental health struggles and, and needs? And, and so I'm curious, A, if there are some I mean, just in general, if there's been some cultural factors to consider as a psychiatrist, as you're working with faith-based organizations, but then also from your perspective as a psychiatrist, I'd love to hear if you could expand a little bit about what role the church has to play in providing some social services or promoting health or um, thinking about ways to reach broader populations. In particular, I mean, you talked about those social determinants of health. And so, I mean, I see how these are all mixed in, but I'd love to hear how you would unpack them being connected. Sure. So I think um, in terms of forming relationships with with churches, I think the, the key step is really a, a commitment to a a long-term partnership. And so we utilize principles of what we call, what's called community partnered participatory research. Um, some people may be familiar with community-based participatory research, which is a approach of research of physicians and, and clinicians and academicians working in partnership with the communities with whom services will be provided and studies will be conducted. And so we think that, uh, you know, this partnership uh, approach has really been invaluable in being a bridge to connect with with houses of worship. And an example of that is, you know, when I first started working with churches, I spent a lot of time in the evenings giving presentations about stigma related to mental health in houses of worship, Uh, ate a lot of dinners with church members. Mm which was delicious, but also allowed me to form, you know, authentic relationships with people. Um, Mm -hmm. And through this process, we kind of came up with a five-step 
kind of process of community engagement that we use the acronym FAITH as a way of um, connecting with with churches. Um, So the F stands for form a a strong partnership. Um, The A is for assessing the community's needs. You know, the the needs of of churches and pastors in in Harlem may be similar, but I'm sure there are probably some differences from those in Texas. And so really assessing the needs uh, whether that's mm. through you know, through interviews, through talking to pastors and church leaders, or through conducting more rigorous surveys. But I think understanding the unique needs of the church and its surrounding community is important. And then the A of faith stands for identifying leaders who will support. I think the number one aspect of forming a strong relationship with churches is having a good relationship with the pastor, because whatever mm. he or she says uh, tends to to go. And so you really need to identify the leaders at the pastorship level and then the, the ministry level um, who are going to be champions for the initiative. And then the T of faith stands for take time to set the context. Um, Holly, you know that, that unfortunately mental health is still a very stigmatized condition. And so, you know, we mm-hmm. really spent a lot of time thinking about language and how to frame presentations and and community symposiums around mental health. And that is an example of that. Instead of talking about depression when announcing a community mental health forum, we would title it like overcoming stress or strategy mm-hmm. to promote wellness. Mm-hmm. Avoid some of the more polarizing terms like depression or substance use and opioids, which we know, of course, is, is a national pandemic. Uh, and then the last one is honor the community's culture, which I really think underscores the, what we talked about earlier in terms of understanding some of the historical and cultural factors that can both hinder as well as facilitate the sustainability or continuation of these types of church-based supports. So that's the model that we've tried to use, you know, in, in engaging, you know, pastors and We've been fortunate that it's been, you know, pretty successful thus far. That's so good. I I love yeah. that. I really loved that faith acronym when I got to hear it. Um, and I think it's so accessible. And it, I mean, for, as a social worker, I mean, this, you know, it just it lines up so well with a lot of the principles that we're taught in social work around, you know, advocacy and community partnership and building those connections. So I love, I just love, and I love the acronym. It's perfect. And and can I just add that, you know, you asked about like, how as a psychiatrist, do I look at this? And the answer is I've turned to colleagues who are social workers. Uh, Mm. (laughs) I think that the social work field has done a much better job historically and currently at really understanding the context uh, in which the patients that we serve live. And I think psychiatry and medicine in general has had a much more individual focus and has Mm. often come across across in a patriarchal way, um, as in, I know best, you you do this, um, without fully understanding the context of the people's lives whom we're trying to serve. And so I, I spend most of my time, you know, with social workers. My leadership coach is a social worker. My therapist is a social worker. My wife is a social worker. And mm. all, all of our RAs <laughs> are social work students. And so a big part of my role in the medical school, I've been fortunate to be able to shape 
um, and make recommendations um, for our medical education. And we're really bringing a lot of principles from social work into medical education. Oh my gosh. I love this. I <laughs> <laughs> It's like it's like music to my ears. No, I I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate those kind those kind words, but I appreciate the ways that you uh, that you listen to social workers and create space for them. And I love that you're that you noted your wife is a social worker and um, and your leadership coach and your therapist. Like I I love that. I. I feel I mean, like I we, should say something about being a licensed professional counselor. Well, just this episode can be a, an advertisement for social work. <laughs> uh, no, I I really appreciate that though, Sydney. But I I think it also speaks to your. Yeah, I mean, clearly this is embedded within you too to be able to see this and to be able to do some of this work around engaging these communities so well. So I really do want to applaud you for the way that you have built this team and have seen the ways that these uh, pieces all connect between your practice and these faith-based organizations and the community. And I mean, it's just remarkable. Along those lines, um, I would love to hear you talk to us a little bit about the Community Coalition in New York City and the Hope Center. Um, and then I might have a couple of questions there after that, but tell us about the work that you've been doing with that in particular. Sure. So the Community Coalition is um, really was birthed out of the, the whole process of community partnered uh, research. And so the coalition is essentially a community advisory board that provides community-based leadership for all of the research studies that we do. So we have about 20 active members of the coalition and our members include pastors, community members who have experienced mental health problems like depression and and substance use disorders, as well as clinicians. Um, We also have representatives from the New York City um, Department of Health uh, because we know that policy certainly impacts access to care and then just community advocates. And so the the coalition is really um, my ears to the ground about what are the mental health needs, you know, of the community. Um, and then I see my job as really being a servant to the coalition to try to find resources and, and partnerships and funding to to address it. So the, the two areas, you know, the coalition first started on implementing mental health first aid. So that was the mm. prevention that we implemented uh, and trained almost 300 people um, from churches in Harlem in mental health first aid uh, wow. to be able to identify and support people with mental health conditions and then connect them to care if needed. And then after we did mental health first aid, the coalition members really wanted to address the rise in suicide in the Black community as well as the opioid epidemic. Um, so we're currently working on we're conducting, you know, virtual opioid overdose and naloxone trainings um, for churches. Um, we're in the process of actually working on some school-based and church-based interventions for youth um, for de- to address depression and suicide. Uh, so the coalition is really, uh, I love it because it's it's uh, it keeps us rooted in making sure that we're addressing the needs of the community and it gives the community a voice. Yeah. 
So that's the coalition. And then the Hope Center um, is actually, it's a freestanding mental health clinic uh, that was created um, from First Corinthian Baptist Church. Uh, so First Corinthian Baptist Church is what we would consider a mega church. Um, it has about 10,000 members now, um, right in central Harlem. And the pastor of the church is just really attuned to the impacts of kind of trauma that have affected the African-American community and the dearth, really, of mental health services. So he created the Hope Center. Um, It's now in in its fourth year. It's run by um, (laughs) Dr. Lena Green, who is a doctor of social work. Um, Mm. And it it provides evidence-based psychotherapy, so up to 10 sessions of of free psychotherapy uh, for community members in Harlem. And it's a tremendously just um, amazing space and shows how churches can be really facilitators in increasing access uh, to mental health services. Um, and so I've been working with First Corinthians um, for over eight years now, and um, we're actively trying to expand access to clinicians and, and serve more people you know, through the work of the Hope Center. I love that. Well, and I loved, I mean, I remember when we met, you had a video about the Hope Center too that you shared yeah. with us. Would that be, could could I, could we include that in the show notes for our listeners if they want to learn a little bit more about that? Yeah, Would sure. you be okay yeah. if we did that? Okay, awesome. And it's on YouTube, so it's public. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, I, I definitely want to give our listeners a taste of of that work that y'all are doing and what that looks like. Um, so that would be awesome. So in light of this work between the Community Coalition and the Hope Center, you know, I remember you had also mentioned that there were some strategic ways in which we can increase access to mental health care and services and and helping to meet various needs within the community through some form of faith-based care. I don't want to put you on the spot. I remember there were three of them. I, I don't mind sharing them if 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 you want the reminder. If you remember them and want to go with them, that's fine too. That would be great. <laughs> okay, sure. So, so the three that you had mentioned that I thought were really important and powerful were, um, first, you had mentioned exploring clergy's perspectives and uh, potential um, cultural stigma. The mm-hmm. second was screening for depression in churches. And the third was building faith-based organization and academic partnerships. Do you mind unpacking any or all of those to the degree that you want to tell us more about how we can increase um, access and services through faith-based care? Sure. Uh, so I'll go kind of in order. So in terms of um, exploring clergy perspectives, I, I think um, that's so important um, for several reasons. First, the, the clergy are really the leaders of the church and their perspectives and attitudes towards mental health conditions really sets the the culture for the church's attitude towards mental health conditions. And so if they are allies and if they are um, have positive perspectives of promoting mental health treatment, then I think that goes a long way to making that, you know, a reality. Um, so what we did early on was conduct focus groups with pastors to get their perspectives about the feasibility of providing church-based care. And they really, I think, 
three key themes emerge from the focus groups. One, when talking about depression, uh, you know, the focus of my clinical work and my research is depression. When they talked about depression, they really contextualized depression as one of the one, but of the many factors of chronic stress that is facing the African-American community. And so really uh, attributed depression not to biological causes necessarily or to psychological or spiritual causes, but really to socioeconomic inequalities and to, and to institutional factors that contribute to kind of chronic stress in the African-American community. So that really showed me the importance of engaging social workers, really, to have a better understanding of how to do this, because I quite frankly wasn't equipped to be able to do that. Um, So the second really thing that they um, emphasized was the importance of partnerships. Um, I remember one of the pastors in the focus group said, you know, Dr. Hankerson, we like you, but you're not just going to come in here with your little degrees from Columbia, do a study, and then fly out of here. You really have to partner with us for there to be any chance of success in providing kind of church-based care. And then building off of the partnership theme, they really emphasize the importance of providing connections to services. And so because of that, we we created a, a community health worker institute at Columbia, and we are recruiting all community health workers from local churches, health ministries. Um, so we have created this program that's based off of the Centers for Disease Control model of community health workers. It's an eight-week curriculum, and you know, folks from the local church health ministries are trained how to screen for blood pressure and and cholesterol, and they're taught motivational interviewing, and they mm-hmm. screen for depression. And so they really are the bridge to services. And then in terms of screening for depression, we yeah conducted the first church-based depression screening study in three different churches in New York City and found mm-hmm. very, very high rates of depression. And surprisingly, there were actually higher rates of depression among men, you know, in our sample at the, across these three different churches. And men traditionally <laughs> have lower rates of depression than women. But mm-hmm. I think, again, it showed the importance of kind of the safe space uh, that churches can provide and allowing men to kind of put their guard down and and open these questions honestly. And we found very high rates of depression, you know, in men. And then in terms of um, the last one about just what was increased access? What was the third? Uh, The last one was building those faith-based organization and academic partnerships. Oh, yeah. In terms of building the, the partnerships, that's really where the, the coalition comes in. Um, and it's a the way we have our coalition set up, it's an open group. It's, you know, anybody can come to any of our meetings and we actively do presentations and try to get more uh, more members to come because we really feel like the diversity of members across multiple factors, uh, you know, across race, across gender, across faith traditions, it helps the success of our coalition. And the coalition really is the bridge in terms of fostering the connections between the academic world and the community world and the faith-based world. That's so good. I love that. Thank you for explaining those so, so well. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is as you were talking through all of this, I was thinking about how kind of 
counter cultural in terms of right like everything you're saying is we have to be kind of holistic right there's okay how access to care and all these other areas and stigma and all those things and we have to for these partnerships to work really become part of these communities right like that being you know okay you have to listen to what are their needs and all that right they said like you can't just come in and come out and i i would say that most people would say right now you know kind of as a at large culture we like okay can we do kind of a quick fix that's like very targeted you know that type of thing and so it's just it's striking to me how important those aspects are in what you're talking about in terms of like how do we actually do some of these things and be in it for the long haul yes yes robert i think it's um it's crucial uh especially in in communities of color where there has been just a history of distrust and exploitation um, there's just a tremendous amount of suspicion of academicians in particular kind of coming in, collecting data, and then leaving and, you know, publishing a great paper, but leaving nothing back with the community. So I think you really highlight just such an important point about the importance of engaging, you know, communities of color and, and faith-based organizations over the long term. Yeah, that's really good. My, um, I, I really do. I, I don't want to under, understate how important it is what you were just saying, though, about how researchers have gone into these various communities and groups and have, like you said, taken the data, publish it, and there's nothing that goes back. That's such a, I teach research methods um, for our social work students, like the MSW and the, the doctoral students. Mm-hmm. And that is like, one of the biggest pieces I try to drive home to them, like when you are doing your research studies, I know I'm going into researcher mode right now, but, um, <laughs> but I, but I always, I'm like, I am always on them and saying like, when you do your studies, like you need to give the results back to the communities. You need to make it applicable and relevant and you need to, you know, explain and give it, give it to them in a way that is meaningful because it's not, about just taking the data and amplifying your career. It is about serving these communities. I mean, I could, oh, I could go on about this, but I'm just really appreciative of you elevating this. Yeah. No, and really I think that, you know, your your passion for that and your, I think, bringing that back is is one of the many reasons that, that you and I connected so much at that um, forum. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I think that you just really eloquently stated something that a lot of researchers just quite frankly don't think about. Um, they go into a community, do a study, and then leave without thinking about how the impact of even asking questions about trauma or substance use or depression, the impact that that has on communities that, that have not often participated in research and kind of opening Pandora's box and not giving a way for folks to kind of decompress. Mm-hmm. So I think that to your point, I'm just echoing that, how important that is. Yeah, no, thank you. Even uh, beyond like, obviously uh, y'all both do uh, research, but I'm thinking about, you know, if our, our listeners are faith leaders or uh, clinicians or just people who say like, hey, I'm, I put together these projects or whatever, right? Like, to go into a community and say like, here, there's just this thing that I think will help. Okay, bye, right, is like potentially not that helpful long-term when we're thinking about what you're saying in terms of like, okay, we have to like become part of these communities. Like, what do you really need? Like, whatever that is, right? Um, and so I think there's kind of a, a mindset shift in terms of how we 
think about like how do we help people just in general, but obviously like specifically what we're talking about here. Yeah. No, I think I think that's a good point. Yeah. That empowerment is really important and serving, having a heart of service, I think, in the work that we do is really important. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious too. I mean, I I recognize your expertise and your experience as a psychiatrist is really important in this conversation um, as well. I mean, I love what we have talked about in terms of your work with um, these various groups and organizations and faith based organizations, but. I also, you know, recognize that you are working with clients in a number of ways around various mental health issues. And so I would love to hear, you know, to the degree to which you feel comfortable sharing, are you seeing like in the work that you do with clients, um, do you see, you know, some of the potential positive and or negative associations between religiosity and mental illness um, within the practice? And that you're engaged in, in the work that you do. And I should I should know that like we've had, you know, Ken Pargaments come on talking about religious coping styles and things like that before. And so we've we've talked a little bit about this, but I'm curious from your perspective as a psychiatrist, how you see the association between religiosity and mental illness pop up. Yeah, I think that's a really um important, you know, aspect of the work. So I see, you know, clients in a what's called a federally qualified health center. So it's actually a primary care center um, located in Harlem that is specifically focused on serving people who are underserved. So about 90% of our patient population is either on Medicaid or Medicare or undocumented. So it's a it's a patient population that doesn't have a lot of money per se but also has a tremendous amount of strengths. And one of the the biggest strengths of many of the patients that we serve is their faith and or their connection to a house of worship. And so inevitably, when I'm seeing patients, you know, in clinic, especially when I'm seeing them for the first time, I kind of do, you know, spiritual history and their spiritual beliefs and and asking about how frequently, frequently they attend their house of worship. And Sometimes for people who are in the midst of a depressive episode, because some of the symptoms of depression, social withdrawal or anhedonia, they maybe have not been going to church as much as they had before being depressed. And maybe they have not been reading scripture as much as they had before. And so part of my treatment plan is to try to get them to do those things that they used to do. Um, Because we know through Dr. Pargamon's work and through Dr. Koenig's work, through your work, Holly, you know, how important, you know, a person's spiritual life is to their mental health and how using religion and spirituality to cope, how beneficial that can be, um, especially for people for whom it's an important part of their life. Um, so I, if from a, from a assets or strength-based approach, I definitely try to uh, engage people from that perspective. I think from a, um, a barrier approach, per se, I think some people of faith have had difficulty taking antidepressants or taking psychotropic medications. And the reason they say sometimes, or some of the reasons I've gotten is that, well, I just need to pray and I'll get better, or I don't want to take medicines because I should be able to control my mind. And so I think that one of the 
a challenge um, for people of faith is accepting or being able to be okay with, you know, taking a medication for a mental health condition and seeing that that can be used in concert with their spiritual practices. So I think there's Mm -hmm. a tremendous opportunity, you know, for growth um, in that area. That's really helpful. Um, One thing that we love to ask our guests when they come on the show, especially recognizing the depth of work that they do and, you know, how much they pour their heart and soul into this work. And so I would love to hear your hope for this work that you do, whether it's, you know, tied to the coalition or your connection with the Hope Center or these ways in which you're you're serving your your clients and and speaking about this intersection. What's your hope for this work, Dr. Hankerson? Wow, I you know my 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 dream for this work is that we can just fundamentally transform the way that that churches you know talk about, think about, and seek mental health services. And for me, that transformation looks like several different things. I think one, I would love to see kind of hope centers or similar kind of faith-based clinics um, replicated throughout the country and thinking about the South and, and the Southwest, you know, Texas and the, the Southeast kind of the Bible belt, I think is really ripe for kind of replicating um, that type of structure because people's faith is such an important part of their lives, especially in that part of the country. I'd also love to see pastors talk more openly about their mental health struggles because Mm -hmm. they're human. And um, there's actually, you know, data that shows that the, the rate of suicide among clergy is increasing. And I think that there's really a space for pastors, especially those who are seeking mental health care or in therapy to share their therapeutic experiences um, and the importance of getting therapy, because I think that would do a tremendous um, amount in reducing some of the stigma associated with mental health problems. And then I think I, I think that the the church can really be a bridge for a lot of different things. Um, I guess when I say be the bridge, I'm thinking about my friend Latasha Morrison's book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bridge, who's in Texas and you yeah. know, at the same church in Atlanta before she went to Austin. And I just think that she has created such a niche around issues of racial reconciliation, you know, in the body of Christ. And I just, I think that in my mind, racial reconciliation and mental health are really linked. And I think it's important to address both um, just because of we understand how racism can impact um, folks' mental health. So I, I would love there to be more spaces of kind of being the bridge. And I know she's created these groups. And I just think that the intersection of talking about racial justice just fits really well with with mental health. Gosh, I love that so much. Yeah. I love all of those points. And man, that's really good. <laughs> I'm with you. That's really good. And the last thing I'll say is, Holly, you and I have to work on a grant together. 
And yeah, just, we do. We, we, can't, we can't be doing these once a year events, you know? No. <laughs> we we got to figure out a project where we can uh, be on this together. So I'll just. I would. Reverse. <laughs> I would love that. No, I really, I really would love that. I just, I really appreciate your heart for the work that you do. And I love that we can come from different disciplines, but still have the same shared focus and interest and desire to to serve others, particularly around this intersection, you know, while being incredibly mindful of the varying layers of intersectionality that make this, you know, that, that we need to be paying attention to as we're looking at this intersection of faith and mental health. Yeah. So, gosh, I'm really grateful for your presence, Sydney. I really, really am. Probably, I just... I kind of just say you just have just such a uh, just such a soothing presence, and I just you need to be on like Calm or uh, <laughs> one of those apps. You really do. You just have just, mm-hmm. your energy and your passion, and it just really flows through. So I'm just mm-hmm. I'm, I'm eagerly as grateful for you and your passion and your heart, you know, for this work and for this platform that you're providing, you know, for people to talk about these topics. Thank you. I so appreciate that. I would definitely listen to a Holly guided meditation. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe that can be, that'll be the grant that we work on. We'll do a grant that ties in some kind of guided meditation. How's that? I love it. I love it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, listeners, if you would like to connect with Dr. Sydney Hankerson, you can find him at sydneyhankerson.com. We'll have the link for that in the show notes. If you'd like to connect with Robert, you can find him at robert-bohr.com or on any social media at Robert Bohr. Um, if you want to connect with me, you can find me at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. Feel free to connect with the show at CXMH on any social media. And yeah, Dr. Hankerson, I am just so deeply grateful for you joining us today, for your time, your willingness to share your wisdom. And I'd love to hear if you have any closing thoughts uh, for our listeners today. Well, I first want to thank you again, Dr. Oxhandler, for providing this, this space. And Robert, it's a pleasure to meet you as well. Uh, I, I guess I would just share, um, you know, with listeners that, you know, this year of 2020 has just been filled with emotional turmoil. And I, I, I think in spite of that, we've also seen uh, tremendous emotional strength and resilience. And so as we're almost about to turn the page on 2020 and open the door to 2021, I hope that we can draw on that strength. Um, that we've seen exhibited, the heroism and the selflessness, the support, um, despite the necess- necessity of social distancing. I think we've seen the the goodness of the her- human spirit and human condition. And I think that our houses of worship can truly be, as my pastor would often say, not sanctuaries for th- for saints, but hospitals for those who are hurting. And I think that Mm. as a nation, in spite of our hurt, we have tremendous grit. We have tremendous um, support from one another. And I would just hope that we would lean into that support and that spirit of togetherness as we journey into the next year. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. 
Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com. 